available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 25th of January, 2023. And coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, we have got the second part of the piece about James Herriot of the All Creatures Great and Small fame. We have Stella telling us about January and its traditions, a piece about a glass eye maker, and a short story from Ali. Plus, of course, all of our usual features, such as your post bag and sport. But first, we're going to start with a view of the past week's news with your readers, Elaine and myself. Outlook News. A motion urging the government to either scrap or postpone voter ID at polling stations was carried at last Tuesday's Coventry City Council meeting, despite staunch opposition from the city's Conservative group. The proposal, moved by Councillor Abdul Salim Khan, asked for voter ID requirement under the 2022 Elections Act to be delayed until a prolonged national information campaign could be implemented. At polling stations, voters will have to show photographic ID, such as a passport, driver's licence or some concessionary travel passes, such as an older person's bus pass. Those without accepted forms can apply for free ID online at voterauthoritycertificatesservice.gov.uk or by completing a paper form. Councillor Khan said the unnecessary act addressed a problem which he claimed did not exist. He labelled it an attack on people's democratic rights, expressed concerns over the cost of the changes, which could be as much as £20 million per election, and said it could leave millions of legitimate voters without accepted ID forms, especially minorities, unable to cast their ballot. The local government association said it was concerned there was insufficient time to implement this ahead of the May elections and called for the introduction of this policy to be delayed. The motion seconder, Council Gavin Lloyd, said there was little or no evidence of voter fraud in Britain and all seemed to favour older voters. Opposing the motion, Councillor Peter Mayo said, the debate is immaterial, it has been approved, and pointless motions like this will have no impact whatsoever. The elections team in Coventry have already released a timetable that includes the deadline for applying for a voter authority certificate, and we have all been invited to attend an all-member seminar to understand the changes. If the Council is truly committed to ensuring greater participation in elections, they would be much better engaged in rolling out an information campaign to ensure voters locally are fully aware of the new requirements. Plans to create a new industrial park in Coventry have been submitted to the City Council. Midlands-based development and construction firm The Wigley Group aimed to create a new multi-let industrial park with 24 units, ranging in size from 1,000 to 3,000 square feet. The facility, to be named Albion Enterprise Park, will be located on Endermere Road in Foleshill, at the back of the Albion Industrial Estate, which is also partly owned by the Wigley Group and fully tenanted. The project will have a gross development value of circa $6 million and will provide sustainable and modern industrial units with office and storage space, 
catering for small businesses. New plans would include a total of 72 parking spaces, which would be split equally between all 24 units. Mike Vining, Land and Development Director at the Wigley Group, which is based in Stockton in Warwickshire, said, We are really pleased to be bringing this application forward to Coventry City Council. Coventry is a city which has historically been rich in industry, and it is the place to be for businesses, given its connectivity to key transport corridors and motorway networks. There is an acute demand for industrial space, and in a location like this, we expect there to be huge interest both for resale and opportunities to let. The 1.88 acre site used to house pre-war industrial units, however, these were in poor condition and subsequently demolished, with the site now for prime for redevelopment. Coventry City Council leader, Councillor George Duggins, has hit out at the government after the city was snubbed for levelling up funding. The Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities announced the second round of awards from its Leveling Up Fund on January the 19th, with the City Council submitting three bids totalling almost £58 million. Two of the bids were looking to help improve Foes Hill and Hillfields, two of the city's most disadvantaged areas, and another to help create a new cultural gateway into the city centre. Councillor Duggan said he was angered that the majority of the funding has been allocated to London and the south-east of England. We were told the concept was about bringing all areas into line, so how could it be right that Coventry has been overlooked, like many other Midlands and northern towns and cities? Our region secured just 1.9% of today's levelling up pot, and the majority of the money has gone to London and the south-east, which means we are meant to be levelling up with. How is that fair? After the first round of funding, the need of Coventry was recognised as we moved from Category 2 area to the highest priority of Category 1, but still our bids have been rejected. Councillor Duggan said the City Council has received a government funding reduction of £110 million a year since 2010. Let's be clear, this is not new money they are awarding anyway. At best, this money is a partial refund for the money we have lost and has been stripped out of our communities over the last 13 years. Coventry Conservatives leader, Councillor Gary Ridley, said the city has been really fortunate to receive significant government investment in recent years, such as the City of Culture Year, improvements to the public realm in the city centre, several new schools and improvements to transport infrastructure. None of them could have happened without support from government, so I'm disappointed by this announcement, but I'm not downbeat. Coventry's Library Service is celebrating achieving the Nationally Recognised Libraries of Sanctuary Award. The award was celebrated as a presentation on Tuesday, January 17th at the Central Library. Libraries of Sanctuary aim to inspire, support and promote the use of public libraries as places of welcome for those seeking sanctuary in the UK. It also recognises the good practice of libraries welcoming new arrivals into their community. The services have looked at ways they could make the welcomes more helpful and meaningful to those seeking sanctuary. These include employing staff who speak Arabic and Dari, setting up sessions to support those wanting to practice and improve their spoken English, and using library spaces for Ukrainian refugee welcome meetings. 
Coventry has recently been awarded the City of Sanctuary Award for work helping new arrivals feel welcome. Councillor Kindi Sandu, Cabinet Member for Education and Skills, said, The library's team have worked tremendously hard to make this happen and I am very proud of everyone involved. This is just the start of the exciting journey with the team continuing to work with those seeking sanctuary to further develop our services in the future. Tax rules on empty properties in Coventry are set to change, but the Council has delayed an opportunity to double Council tax on second homes. Coventry homeowners will have to pay a 100% Council tax premium on unfurnished properties left empty for more than a year from April 2024. City councillors voted on Tuesday, January the 17th to raise the levy when the UK councils get the powers to do this under a government bill that will be brought in next year. The new rules will affect 580 properties in Coventry and could bring in an extra £900,000 in council tax per year, though this is likely to go down once more homes are brought into use. But councillors also opted not to double council tax on second furnished homes in the city because it may lead to unintended consequences. Under these rules, a 100% tax premium would have been applied from the day a second home defined as furnished becomes unoccupied. This would include rental properties in the city and hit landlords between tenancies, according to the report for this week's meeting. If the Council had decided to bring this in from 2024, it would have affected 2,200 homes in Coventry and potentially added £3.6 million to Council coffers. Instead, the Council will review the policy over the next 12 months and bring forward a report with new recommendations. The Council has delayed an opportunity to double the Council tax, Coventry co, co- Coventry homeowners will have to pay this with properties empty after April 2024. Volunteers were out in full force last Saturday during the fourth Kersley Jubilee Wood Community Action Day. The maintenance event, organised by Councillor Matthew Dill alongside other Kersley Parish Councillors, saw 11 volunteers go down to the wood to help maintain it. Maintenance work included litter picking, fly-tipping and bramble removal, tree-crowning and pruning. Volunteers also started to straighten a lopsided fruit tree with a prop. The Parish Council is collaborating with Coventry City Council's park rangers who provided equipment such as tools, gloves and goggles, guidance and drinks for volunteers. The Action Days first started last year with Coventry Park Rangers, local schools, scout groups and volunteers undertaking various sessions to rejuvenate the green space. The three hectare wood in Watery Lane was created to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012, with last year's run of Action Days planned to return the area to its former glory for June's Platinum Jubilee. Previous work included grass cutting, litter picking and the installation of new benches. Councillor Dill said, We know lots of people use and enjoy Kersley Jubilee Wood and it needs your help to keep it looking as beautiful as it does. We're hoping to be able to schedule more events with Coventry Park Rangers in the not too distant future where we will be looking for more local volunteers. Please do let us know if you would be interested in taking part 
and we encourage everyone to visit and enjoy the wood, check out the progress and let us know what you think. Claims that there is a lack of leadership on climate action at Coventry City Council have been rejected as an expert criticised the authorities' no-can-do attitude. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, who is Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said that Coventry was actually leading the way in tackling climate issues. It comes after Tony McNally, who founded Climate Change Solutions, an organisation which advocates for a no-carbon future, claims that installing 12 million solar panels on buildings across the West Midlands and establishing a new growth industry will drive the low-carbon transformation of Coventry. While speaking at the United Reformed Church in Coventry, an audience member asked if it was possible to approach Councillor O'Boyle with a business plan for solar that will generate money and jobs rather than costing money. He responded, We have engaged with Councillor O'Boyle. He did a very thorough study of the challenge and said it doesn't work. However, Councillor O'Boyle has rejected the criticism saying there's lots of people with opinions about climate change out there. Actually, Coventry is leading when it comes to making changes and taking action to both reduce our carbon footprint and tackle the issues of climate change. He went on to state that Coventry is developing a solar farm, which he claims in 12 to 18 months could feed into the national grid or power the city's street lamps. He also highlighted the innovative very light rail system coming to the city, the first of its kind in the UK. Councillor Ebor added that Coventry is going to be the only city in the country by 2025 to have an all-electric fleet of buses, which he said was a direct result of action I've taken in order to bid to various organisations and government to get money released to make that happen. Furthermore, Coventry is the location of the UK Battery Industrialisation Centre, established in 2017, to develop new electrical batteries for the British automotive industry. A Coventry Centre has been helping to bring the city's youth community together and teach them crucial life skills for more than a decade. The Positive Youth Foundation was set up 11 years ago by Coventry man Rashid Bayat, who wanted to champion the community and the young people in the area. The foundation offers a space for young people aged 18 to 25 to come and enjoy themselves as well as getting involved in programmes such as employment, mentoring and community sports. At the centre in Hillfields there is also a kitchen where young people can participate in cooking lessons as a place to practice their skills for the future or to help out the family at home. Hora Sastoon, aged 17, who attends the youth centre and says it is proactive for her to learn how to cook as it's her responsibility as the older child to cook for her and her siblings at home. Each week we have a cooking session where they teach us a new dish, so when I go back home I don't have to be thinking about what to cook. I just remember what I cooked here, so it really helps us, she said. The teenager has plans one day to build her own skateboarding community and build her own brand. She says, I love skateboarding. I am in the process of filming lots of videos and when I have enough money, that will help me build my business. Another group member, 18-year-old Mahumadu, came to the UK when he was 16 but struggled to speak English and feels that the youth centre has helped him with communication skills and that he can depend on the staff for help. 
Major roadworks are set to continue for several months in Coventry. Building works are currently taking place in Sponend to widen roads in a bid to improve traffic flow and ease congestion. The roadworks were due to be completed in April, however Coventry City Council has confirmed the works have been delayed. They are expected to be completed in June, the council has now said. Jerry Raleigh, Programme Manager for Transport and Infrastructure, said the measures held long-term benefits. The alternative, which was the government's preferred option, was a clean air zone, otherwise known as a charging zone, he said. To put that in context for Coventry, it would have covered 82,000 residents and the charge would have been £8 per day. Mr Riley said there, were, there would likely to be a phased opening on some roads within the coming months. He said, it is short term and it's going to be for another five months. When the works are complete, the congestion will be far less and traffic will flow better than it did before. Coventry residents are furious after a developer chopped down trees near their homes without warning. The developer has cleared seven mature trees along Boswell Drive to pave way for a new development, leaving locals furious over the destruction of the greenery. Some of the trees have been planted as early as 1966. Now Coventry City Council has placed a protection order on the last remaining tree. Residents in Walsgrave are fighting to save the last tree, which was planted in memory of a deceased resident who lived in the area. They are urging those living in the area to write to the council to request the protection order become permanent. Residents believe the land will be used to build houses, flats or a car park. Martina Irwin is a volunteer at Coventry Action Network. A group of volunteers in Coventry campaigning to protect wildlife trees and green spaces. She is joining residents in their fight to protect green spaces across the city. There are pockets of land across the city that go up for auction and are bought by developers, including the land on Boswell Drive, without obtaining consent or consideration of residents who live near or around these areas, Martina said. She told Coventry Live, Our concern is that across Coventry there are lots of pockets of green spaces, that an assumption is made that those spaces are owned by the council, but they are not. The council maintains those green spaces, but those little pockets on the corners of roads and neighbourhoods, mature trees have established themselves. The council maintain the areas around the trees, but they use community spaces where people gather, children play, and people walk their dogs. They're a valuable part of local neighbourhood. The threat of those spaces is really quite serious in that often people don't know who owns the land. Outlook News. So thank you to Elaine for helping with the news. It's all a bit doom and gloom at the moment. That seems to be the news generally is all doom and gloom, which also matches the weather because it's dark and it's cold and it's damp and it's a bit miserable. But it is slowly getting a bit lighter. So now lighting up is, or lighting down, is 7.58 in the morning, so nearly 8 o'clock, and 20 to 5 at night. So it's definitely getting lighter in the evening, which is a good thing. The start of the new year, of course. So I could say to you, Happy New Year, but you might think I'm a bit late. 
but so Nigel informs me, last Sunday, the 22nd of January, was a Chinese New Year, so it's not really too late to say Happy New Year. This is when dragons and lions, symbolising wisdom and power, which bring good luck and drive away evil spirits, celebrated a New Year in Chinatown throughout the world. We celebrated the Gregorian Solar New Year of 2023, equivalent to the Chinese Lunar Year of the Rabbit. According to Chinese astrology, an individual's character and fortune is determined by their birth year. Those born in the year of the rabbit are said to have a reserved, kind nature that hides inner strength. The rabbit is one of 12 animals in the Chinese zodiac, which also includes ox, tiger, dragon, snake, horse, goat, monkey, rooster, dog and pig. The dragon is said to have the most desirable personality, often prompting a surge of births in that year. The Lunar New Year falls between January the 21st and February the 20th, and it's celebrated by an estimated 2 billion people. In China, Chongyong, the spring migration, is the biggest movement of people on the planet. Some 3 billion journeys are made as people travel to be with their family. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, I don't know any Chinese. The only other thing is, um, is Niha, which I think is hello, but don't quite be on that. So that's one celebration for January. And then the other one, which is actually today, the 25th, is Burns Night, celebrating the birth of Scotland's own bard, Robbie Burns, with a piping in of the haggis and toasts the plenty of a wee dram. But in, born in Dumfries, where Burns, sorry, but in Dumfries, where Burns is buried, they go to much greater lengths and have created an entire fringe festival around him with 10 days of events. This is the first year since 2020 the Scots have been able to celebrate Burns Night properly. The bard, who we all know, wrote Old Lang Syne, but also a red, red rose. So here's to Rabbi Burns. Right, so coming up next, of course, we have our sport, as usual, with Sarah, who's not with us this week, but she has pre-recorded it, so I'd be interested to hear what she's got to say about the sport in this very difficult time of year for sports in this country. It's a bit wet and cold and muddy, isn't it? Outlook Sport. Well, hi there, folks. Yes, it's Sarah with sport. Well, actually, there isn't all that much sport sort of taking place at the moment. So I'm going to start with a phonetics lesson. Now, during this piece, I will talk about two different men. One, Jokeres, who is a Swedish footballer and plays for Coventry City, by the way. And one, Jokovic who is a Serbian tennis player. Now, neither begin with a Y, as in Yugoslavia. I mean, Jokovic, Jokerez. Well, it would be too easy, wouldn't it? So all you have to remember is that Jokerez, the footballer, begins with a G, and Jokovic, the tennis player, begins with a D. Easy, in it? Yeah. Now, most of the local non-league football fell foul to the weather at the weekend, as also did Coventry Rugby Club's match, 
which was due to take place at Amthill. No, not Amthill. Amthill. Now, I'm, di- I'm told by my friend who attends most of Cov's away matches that Amthill Stadium isn't really a stadium. In fact, there's no stadium or stadia at all. It is literally just a field. And as it's in Luton, and that area's been having the more cold weather recently, well, I'm not surprised it was cancelled. Two non-league football matches did manage to take place. The first was Racing Club Warwick, who I know won, but I can't tell you who they were playing or how many by. I just heard it on CWR. But the second one, Coventry United men, who play their home matches at the Butts Park, which of course has got the artificial pitch. And they beat Easington Sport 4-1. Meanwhile, not to be outdone, the women playing Crystal Palace in the Championship on Sunday won 3-1. Come on, girls, make that late-season charge for for promotion. Well, you might be gathering I'm actually putting off talking about Coventry City. But on Saturday, Coventry City took on Norwich City at home at the Coventry Building Society Arena. Now, I'd settled down to listen to it on the radio when they said, oh yes, the kids are really waving those flags for the TV cameras. Great, must be on TV. So I charged into my back room. Well, as much as I can charge with my ex-broken leg. Um, And sure enough, there it was on Sky. However, by the 18th minute, I wish I hadn't bothered. City were already 3-0 down inside 18 minutes. And to make matters even worse, the first goal was an own goal, scored by one of our defenders, Rose. I don't know, where's that remote control to turn the telly off? Oh no, hang on, City has scored. Oh my gosh, they're talking about City being on a comeback. Wow! And they've scored again. Oh, don't want to turn it off now. We've got the second half. Well, I needn't have bothered. Because in the second half, it was the return to sheep-like mode. And yes, we conceded a fourth. And how their star striker, Pookie didn't score many goals I just don't know he had more than ample opportunity so that was the final score two goals City four goals Norwich now it was the first match under the new owner Doug King I wonder if he's looking already for an estate agent for football clubs hmm Oh, and I forgot to say, Mr. Yokarez, yah, 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 begins with a G, remember, couldn't score. 
mind you, nor could any of our other strikers really. And our backs couldn't defend and our midfield seemed to get lost. But hey-ho. Couldn't defend. So hey-ho. Anyway, move on. Now, in Australia, which I said last week it has reached 37 degrees on court, well, the following day, it was 18 degrees and rain. And you think we've got climate problems. Anyway, all four of the Brits who I said were through to the second round are now out. Emma Raducanu, who you may remember, was in such a good place, wasn't in such a good place when she played Coco Goff and went out in the second round. While Dan Evans, Cameron Norrie and Andy Murray all went out in the third round. But I do have a lot of sympathies with Andy Murray. His first match had lasted five hours. His second match lasted six and a half hours and finished at 4 a.m. He basically got to bed at 6 a.m., had to get up again at 9 a.m. for court practice. Three hours sleep, hmm, not really what you want going into a third round match of a major open. Anyway, sadly he lost that in four sets, but looking good for Wimbledon, Andy. Now, so who is going to win? Well, I do think that Jokovic, remember, begins with a D, will win the men's. And I actually hope he does, because although I really didn't agree with him over his vaccination policy, I think actually he's quite a gentleman. Who's going to win the women's? I haven't got a clue, to be honest. I haven't heard of most of them. Although I know they're big names who have been around. But hey-ho, we'll live to see what comes out next week. I'll be reporting on it. And finally, total change of climate here. A huge congratulations to our men's fours in the bobsleigh who won our first ever European Championship gold. Well done, lads. Now, you may remember from my descriptions last year around the Winter Olympics that the bobsleigh is a bit kind of like an upturned half-cylinder with a front. And they all start off running, and they run about 50 metres on the ice, and then one by one, starting with the driver at the front, then the second, third, fourth, they all jump in and the fourth one closes the gate over at the back so he can basically can't fall out the back. And then they mostly steer by leaning to the two sides but also by pulling on a basic rudder type concoction up the floor. But the speed they get going down on the ice absolutely incredible and very frightening I think anyway well done lads meanwhile Matt Weston also took the gold but this time 
in the skeleton. You know, the upturned tea tray where they start sitting on it and rocking away and they've got their nails on their gloves, etc., etc. Not for me. And finally, this sort of made me smile. They suddenly realised that they need to change the, the final matches of the championship because... You may remember they all kick off at exactly the same time so nobody gets an advantage. Now, although Burnley will no doubt have been crowned champions many weeks previously, Charles is being crowned king on the day they were scheduled, so they've had to change it to the following day. What I can't understand is why has it taken them this long? But hey-ho, that's football pundits for you. And that was your sport. Thank you to Sarah. Interesting as ever for anybody who's got any interest in sport. And even if you haven't, it's nice to listen to her. And now this is your part of the programme. This is Postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Hi there, it's your postbag again. We begin with a New Year greeting from Hilda of the Monday Club. Hello, it's Hilda Hill here. I'd like to wish all the members of the Outlook uh, tape a very happy New Year. I'm most appreciative of the tape. You get a very good selection of items and I think you must all be working very hard and I thank you very much. Thank you, Hilda. Glad you're still enjoying Outlook. And the messages in Postbag make Outlook particularly enjoyable because we get to find out what each other has been doing. And Mark Howell, he's been spending Christmas in Wales. Friday the 23rd of December, my brother came down from Wales to pick me up to go to Abergavenny to spend Christmas before we went to the cemetery to put some flowers into my mum and dad's stones. Then we set off on our way to Wales. It took us about one hour and a half to get there. When we got there, I unpacked my bag, then I had a rest before having my dinner, then we watched television. Saturday 24th of December, we took my nephew to Monmouth to work. Then me and my sister-in-law went for a walk around the shops to buy a book. Then we drove back home for dinner. Then we went into town to get the book that we ordered. Then we went home for a rest before tea. Sunday the 25th of December, we went to an 11 o'clock Christmas Day Mass to celebrate Christmas. Then we came home. I helped my sister-in-law with preparing the Christmas dinner and opening the champagne to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Then we ate cheese and olives and cheese biscuits. Then we started on our starter with a glass of red wine. Then we pulled a Christmas cracker. Then we had the main course. Then we had the Christmas pudding with custard. And then we started to open the presents. Monday the 26th of December, had, we had a Boxing Day rest. In the afternoon, we went for a walk. 
Tuesday the 27th of December, we went for a walk in the park. Then I started to pack my bag to come home. Wednesday the 28th of December, we travelled back home to Coventry. Thank you, Mark, for that great report. I'm glad you had a nice time. I didn't know your family came from Wales. And Amy, she's been to Florida and tells us of the exciting news that her poetry book, Renaissance, is selling in the United States, thanks to her plugging it in a shop in downtown called Writer's Block. Here she is to tell you about it. There's a shop called Writer's Block in Florida, a bookshop in a place called Winter Garden Old Town, uh, and I just went in on the old and showed them a copy of my book, and they had a look at it, and they agreed to sell it. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah. Do they get the copies off the internet, do they? Yes. The women in, it, in there ordered some, yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So you've made the estates then? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Could say that, yeah. It was already available online in a big bookshop online called Barnes & Noble, which I guess is, is America's equivalent to Waterstones, but that's not just a bookshop. They sell all sorts of things, but that's online. It was already available in Barnes & Noble, but so, it's available in this writer's block now, so, so that is really good. Thank you very much, Amy, for that. Great. Well, Julia has something to say about the various festivals being so close together in the report entitled, Stand By, Julia's About to Take Off. I don't believe it. We've only just got over Christmas and Morrison's are selling Easter eggs already. It's not the baby Jesus' fault that he was born on Christmas Day, but it's a bit inconsiderate that he died as early as Easter. I haven't got over my Christmas pud yet, and they expect me to stuff myself with chocolate eggs. Why do we celebrate Easter with eggs anyway? It doesn't make sense. I bet Jesus didn't have to eat expensive chocolate eggs from Morrison's, but maybe he did. They never tell us anything. I will have to ask the nice man in Morrison's. And another thing... Morrison's are selling Valentine cards too. I must get one for my friend John. He sent me a lovely one last year. Fancy St. Valentine getting born between Christmas and Easter. How are we meant to save up for our summer holidays? I was hoping to go to Nuneaton this year, but what with the cost of bus fares, etc., I think I'll have to make do with Bedworth instead, Julia. Thank you, Julia. Our Spanish sister-in-law brought around some hot cross buns recently, just as I'm trying to get the weight off from the chocolates and the shortbread, etc., from Christmas. So I sympathised. Yes, right, and and they were from um, Morrison's as well, and they were very nice. We enjoyed them. Okay, now uh, Tina has some memories of Christmas. First of all, her Christmas past. We're back at school again. We used to have a Christmas dinner on Wednesday and we had the afternoon off. 
we always sit with the teachers at, at lunchtime. We had sweets and everything like that in treats. We had the we had the mince pies where we went back to our houses and that. And now, last Christmas, I gave you my heart, and the very next day you tore it apart. Here's Tina again. Has, has anybody ever heard of the uh, the old crown? The old crown. Oh, it's just on the outskirts of Coventry. Yeah. 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 That was the start of it. Edward brought his family. He took me out for a meal. Uh, we had Gemma. Gemma, the singer, she comes because Bonnie organises the activities at the home. And then we had a Christmas dinner on the day itself. And then Christmas Eve, we had a pantomime. And then to round things off, New Year, we had a New Year's dinner. And now Edwina has started the New Year as she means to go on by giving you a helpful tip. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I'm just giving you a little tip that I've found very useful now. I don't know whether when you open your bottle of milk, sometimes you put the plastic top down and you go to pick it up and you knock it on the floor. And can you find it? No. So, I'm giving you a tip of what I do now. I always put a spare top in my kitchen drawer. So when you've used a bottle, just save one of the tops, wash it and put it in the drawer and it'll be there if you're in that situation. Keep smiling everybody. Bye. And thank you for that Edwina. Now talking of milk bottles, they used to have red tops and green tops and blue tops but now they have white tops which probably makes it easier to recycle. So if you have a helpful tip to help with a visual impairment, please share it with your fellow listeners. Outlook is very much a shared experience, and you can make a big difference to people's lives simply by passing on simple tips that you think that everybody knows about, but the chances are they don't. So finally, I was given a copy of Peggy McKinney's eulogy, it was said at her funeral. It really does give an insight into the inspiring fun lady she was. And he says Peggy was very much a Coventrian. So it seemed a shame that six months ago there was no suitable home for her in Coventry and she had to go to Birmingham. But as it turned out, the manager at the home in Birmingham was excellent and couldn't do enough for her. So Peggy was born here in Coventry, one of two with her brother Tony. Frustratingly, she was born totally deaf with Usher syndrome, the genetic condition which causes deaf blindness and problems with balance. She had been hugely helped throughout her life by the charity Sense to live a life as full as she possibly could. She was eventually able to go to school at the age of six. Later she was able to work for a few years at the GEC. Then 30 years ago she got married to Patrick 
but sadly that only lasted eight years. Now Peggy was a fiercely independent person and she managed to stay on her own really for most of her life. She loved animals and enjoyed horse riding. She had a dog and a cat. She loved visiting the RFPCA shop and she was always buying packets of pet treats for anyone that she knew who had a pet. She enjoyed going with Janice to the resource centre for the blind. An organiser there, David, arranged one day a visit from a pet sanctuary. She was in her element, despite some of the animals being not really being the cuddly sort, like snakes and rats. She spent ages with the boa constrictor. Now, Tony and his wife, my one, were a big part of her life. She used to go to them for Christmas and on holidays with them abroad. She was always ready to go on sense holidays too. She even managed a short romantic fling following one of them. Now, what else did she like doing? Dancing, certainly. Knitting blanket squares, for instance. For animals, of course, and going to the pub and having a glass of wine. But above all, she would not have been able to do so much had it not been for her support workers, her communicators from Sense, especially Nolene, Bal, Nermal and others, several hours a day, and the Sense manager Martin. It was not always easy for them. Peggy had an obstinate streak and would certainly let you know if she didn't want to do something, but she also had a great sense of fun and everyone loved her. They certainly did, I can vouch for that. Thank you for your messages this week and please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And now we've got another piece from Margaret about interesting places here in Coventry. And this one is about Stichel Church. Stichel Church is dedicated to St. James and originally seated 114 worshippers, but is now much larger. It was built at the cost of Francis Gregory of Stichel Hall. The building took seven years to make, and when completed, replaced the Norman church that stood in the hall's grounds. This was apparently dilapidated and pulled down in 1810. The new church was opened in 1815, and the 12th-century font from the old church was placed in it. The nave measured 32 feet by 18 feet, the chancel was 14 feet by 13 feet, and Western Tower was nine feet by nine feet. In 1851, the Coventry Herald reported, On Tuesday last, Bond's Hospital, in this city, of which he had been an inmate upwards of two years, Mr. James Green, aged 73. Although of a reserved 
turn of mind. He was a man of amiable disposition and exemplary morals. He was by trade a stonemason, and as a very rare occurrence in the life of any single individual, it may be recorded of him that with only the assistance of one labourer, he was the sole and entire builder of a parish church, that of Stevichal, near this city, which he completed about 40 years ago. Green's church, which he also designed, was extended in 1954. The 1815 building can still be seen and now forms the chancel and nave of the present church. Now, I've been a great fan of all creatures great and small on the television. James Herriot's lovely stories about his life as a vet. His books made the Queen laugh, sold 60 million copies and brought thousands of fans to the Yorkshire Dales. To mark a charming new collection of stories, James Herriot's children recalls his rise from a modest veterinarian to a literary superstar. This was written by Jim White and Rosie Page and it's the second part. Dad had already begun working on a second manuscript and It Shouldn't Happen to a Vet was duly published in January 1972. This book covered his second year in practice and introduced a new character, our mother, Joan Danbury, renamed Helen Alderson. While our mother was happiest out of the spotlight, she was perfectly content to feature in the book. She wasn't a farmer's daughter as Helen is, but so much else about their first few months together is true. The chaotic first dates, their small wedding in Fursk, and a working honeymoon testing cattle for tuberculin amid the meadow-sweet hills of the Dales. A third book, Let Sleeping Vets Lie, was published in April 1973 and flew off the shelves. Vet in Harness followed in 1974 and by the time Vets Might Fly was published in 1976, Michael Joseph was printing in the region of 60,000 hardback copies, as they did for a vet in a spin in 1977. James Herriot was a household name, and paperback sales were spectacular. By 1979, each of the first six books had sold more than a million copies, an achievement only then matched by 007 author Ian Fleming. Having worked long hours throughout his life, just about keeping his head above water, the financial rewards were welcome, although money never motivated him. He continued to run the first practice with Jim. If he was reading the newspaper, he might mention one of his books was at the top of the bestseller list, but before anyone had time to respond, he'd have moved on to why Sunderland's FC hadn't beaten Wolverhampton the previous Saturday. Throngs of tourists had begun turning up at 23 Kirkgate, with queues snaking down the street, on the two afternoons our father set aside to sign books. Dad felt he owed as much to his fans, especially those who had travelled from as far away as the US to see him. While visitors were principally there to see the real James Herriot and were often overcome with excitement to meet him, they were also delighted if Donald Sinclair, better known to them as Siegfried, made an appearance. By 1975, the idea we once laughed about, seeing Dad's book on the big screen, 
became reality when the first movie of All Creatures Great and Small was released with Simon Ward playing Dad and Anthony Hopkins starring as Siegfried. Dad was thrilled to see his little stories in movie theatres. Another film, It Shouldn't Happen to a Vet, followed in 1976, this time with John Alderton as James Herriot and Colin Blakely as Siegfried. Two years later, the BBC aired the first television series, All Creatures Great and Small. It was a huge hit, regularly attracting 15 million viewers each week. Broadcast from 1978 to 1990, the seven series featured the virtually unknown Christopher Timothy as Dad, Robert Hardy as Siegfried, future Doctor Who Peter Davison as Tristan, and Carol Drinkwater and then Linda Bellingham as Helen. Awards and honours also began to flood in for Dad, including an invitation to join Her Majesty for lunch later in the year, where he learnt the Queen was a fan and known to laugh out loud when reading his books. Dad continued to work full-time, right up to 1980 when he was almost 65. Unlike other best-selling authors who chose to move abroad to avoid the 83% top rate of income tax, he maintained, I love living in Yorkshire among my friends and family. He always knew what made him happiest and was unaltered by success, writing, It was during those hard days when I spent every waking hour dashing about the countryside, usually with my children in the car, that happiness seemed to steal up behind me and tap me on the shoulder. The seventh book, The Lord God Made Them All, published in 1981, was another bestseller. That year, Dad decided to put down his pen and spend more time with the family, his grandchildren and the dogs who were his constant companions throughout his life. Despite his success as a writer, Dad was happiest when he was at home and always maintained he was 99% vet and 1% author. He insisted, the farmers round here couldn't care less about my book writing activities. If one of them has a cow with its calf bed hanging out, he doesn't want to see Charles Dickens rolling up. In reality, many read his books and were quietly proud to have James Herriot as their vet. Dad always felt fortunate to have met so many interesting people. They, in turn, enriched his life. His stories are full of such characters, as well as Donald and Brian Sinclair, who were pivotal to the books. The pair could be frustrating and chaotic, but both were skilled vets. Dad remained good friends with them. We still see several of the families and former clients in Thursk today, rekindling precious memories of small farms that once dotted the landscape, the wonderful animals and a bygone world which Dad brought alive with skill and tenderness. Um, now we have a piece all about customs old and new related to January. Now I'm not aware of any customs old and new apart from old line design, but I'm sure I'm going to find out more and Stella's going to tell us all about it. January was named by the Romans after the god Janus, guardian of gates and doors. 
He's depicted as having two faces, one looking back to the past and the other forward into the future. New Year's Eve, or Old Year's Night, Hogmanay as the Scots call it, is traditionally a time to celebrate passing through the exit gate of an old used year into a fresh, clean and as yet untrodden one, stretching ahead into the distance. If the dying year contained many troubles, we may be glad to shed it like a snakeskin. And if it did bring good fortune, we can raise a thankful glass. Either way, it's a date symbolising change and bringing new hopes and opportunities. Nowadays, firework displays have become part of our celebrations, and in Scotland, the piper may herald the first moments of January, particularly from the ramparts of Edinburgh Castle. In England, church bells often ring out in greeting. The Victorian poet, Lord Tennyson, wrote some splendidly stirring verses on the subject, which are often quoted on New Year cards. Ring out wild bells to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out wild bells and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. And much more in a similar vein. Looking back, I remember the dances and parties of my youth, when it would have seemed a fate worse than death to have seen in the new year at home. As midnight approached in the pub or club, hall or private house, someone would put on the radio, no Jules Holland TV in those days, so we could hear the chimes of Big Ben. Then you might find yourself letting off a streamer, kissing a total stranger, and joining hands to sing Old Lang Syne. Robert Burns adapted this from an old folk rhyme, and we repeat it in celebration of friendships, remember, from old long since, or long ago. January the 1st was usually spent recovering, getting up late with a sore head, and not having much trouble keeping to resolution 1, eating less, to repair the effects of Christmas gluttony. One year I was awakened by the telephone ringing and ringing, Unbelievable. Who on earth would call at such a time? Well, it was the rather tasty bloke I'd met at the previous night's revelry. And later, I did forgive him enough to marry him. In later years, I've enjoyed going away over the New Year holiday, pre-Covid of course, to a large house in acres of ground, which ran residential courses. One year I joined a group looking at books we had loved in childhood and beyond. And two years running, I danced my way into the new year with an organisation called DUP. No, not the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, but Dances of Universal Peace UK. One year on my trip away, participants wrote down on strips of paper their personal memories of incidents occurring during the past year, both good and horrid. 
The things they wanted to celebrate and remember were added to a tree-like structure decorating a room in the house, and the ones they chose to leave behind and forget were taken into the garden and thrown into a bonfire lit at midnight at the start of the new year. Very satisfying indeed. From experience, I've learned not to make resolutions which set impossibly high targets, dooming the maker to failure by week two. Better to be realistic and not, for example, abandon a new eating plan entirely just because I've succumbed to chocolate cake on one of those short, chill, bleak days that January is so good at producing. At least it's getting slowly, slowly lighter as the month goes on and the first shoots of the brave snowdrops break through the soil to gladden the heart. I know that the secret is to regard every new day as if it were January the 1st, as a fresh starting point, with an unsullied calendar to tick off and an empty diary to fill with our particular projects and dreams. Hmm, something there, definitely. Um, Elaine's with us again now. And she is going to tell us about a very unusual skill. The last person in Britain with the skills to create custom-made artificial eyes. It's an 85-year-old ocularist, Joss Haas, and he talks about his craft to Maddie Fletcher from the U magazine. I met Joss on Halloween, which feels very appropriate given the look of his workspace. The tiny room in his North London home has a small bookcase, two chairs and a wooden table covered in burn marks. There's a Bunsen burner clamped to the desk and I can spot at least two pairs of iron forceps. There are also boxes and boxes of glass eyes. Jost is the only trained glass eye maker in Britain. Around the world there are still a few glass ocularists in business Germany has a handful and so do Latvia, Georgia and Estonia. But in the UK, prosthetic eyes are now nearly all made using silicone materials and high-tech machinery. That means that Jost, 85, is the last of a generation. They're trying to teach somebody in Nottingham how to make glass eyes, I believe, he says. But for now... He is the only man in the country that the NHS would refer you to for a glass eye. And last year, Heritage Crafts, a British charity with King Charles as president, added glass eye making to its red list of endangered crafts. I asked Jost how he would feel if glass eyes ceased to exist in Britain once he retires. The octogenarian wearing a lab coat shrugs. Well... That would naturally be a little bit sad, but I mean, that's how life is. Joss got into glass in the 1950s, when he was a teenager living near Frankfurt. His father did administrative work for a company that made prosthetic eyes, and Joss used to visit him in the office. He remembers watching the ocularists, amazed at how they use their Bunsen burners to craft eyes out of molten glass. Young boys, he explained, like playing with flames and fire. So he started an apprenticeship, and within four years he was a fully trained eye maker. By 1968 he had been offered a job in the UK, 
He packed his bags and bought a house in Barnet, North London, with his wife. The neighbours greeted them with tea and biscuits. Fifty-four years on, they are still in the same spot. Making a glass eye is a long, complicated process. With silicon eyes, most ocularists take a photograph of the patient and model the eye from that. But Jost insists on doing it from life. That way, he says, you can see how an eye looks in motion, the way certain light can change its colour, or how the pupil dilates. Patients sit for three hours while he blows the glass eye by hand, using his trusty Bunsen burner. He does the whites of the eyes first, and then blows thin pieces of coloured glass on top to create the iris. Before I met Jost, I had thought a glass eye was solid, like a marble. But they aren't. Rather, a modern glass eye works a bit like a contact lens. It's a thin glass shell that you place over your eye. And if a patient doesn't have an eye, then a ball is surgically implanted into their eye socket and the glass eye sits on top of that. Although the silicon eyes are very realistic, there are lots of reasons people might prefer gloss. Some patients are allergic to plastic, some say glass is more comfortable, and some just like it because glass is what they're used to. It's cheaper too. A silicon eye can set you back more than a thousand pounds. Joss's glass creations cost a hundred and fifty. I tell him he ought to adjust his prices for inflation, and he mumbles something about being eighty-five and not wanting to upset his customers. Glass eyes are also strangely beautiful. In the piles of them on Joss's desk, some are only half done and do look a bit spooky but the finished ones are spectacular and very lifelike, right down to the small red veins which he draws on with the thin, hot stick of red glass. When I leave his office, Jost gives me a glass eye as a souvenir. I hope I'll never have to use it, but I'm delighted anyway. Unsurprisingly, creating something so detailed by hand is fiddly, and according to Jost, it often goes wrong. The eye may not fit, the colour may not look right, or the client could just be unhappy with it. They might say, there's too much vein in that corner. So I tell them, well that's terrible, we have to make another eye and see if you are more happy. He wants them to leave his house happy. In more than 60 years of eye making, he has hardly ever been bored. That might be down to the patients. Glass eyes lose their shine after about three years, so patients have to visit regularly. One of Joss's clients is 98 and has been coming since the 1960s. Another is in his 20s and has known Joss since he was just five years old. You become friends as far as you can become friends, sitting with the same people for hours on end, decades on end. Of course, says Joss, some clients are less chatty, but not in an unfriendly way. Instead, they sit opposite him while he works quietly, and relaxed by the hum of his Bunsen burner, they sometimes close their eyes and fall asleep. 
It's amazing the old old crafts that still exist, isn't it? But it's a good job somebody can still carry on the traditions. Now it's always interesting to hear Ali's short stories, and this one is called Leaving the Candle Burning. Justine had been in court all day. She was exhausted. And when she got home, the first thing she did after she switched off the house alarm was to kick off her shoes, put her coat on the hook, and go into the kitchen to make a nice strong cup of tea. A few minutes later, armed with a hot tea and her blue and white striped oversized mug, she came into the living room where she noticed her answering machine was flashing with numerous missed calls. Justine was a very busy barrister, specialising in family law. Her caseload is always heavy, and because she's good at what she does, her days are long, but she enjoys the job because she cares. She's the kind of person who always wants to find solutions to problems and uses her skills to facilitate discussion and resolve disputes around a table rather than in a court. She picked up the post from the floor and placed it on the table next to the phone and started to listen to her messages. Beep! Hi Justine, it's your mum. Can you call me back when you get this? Bye! Beep! Hi Justine, it's Ned. Have you spoken to mum? Can you call her? Ned was Justine's younger brother, who worked as a pharmacist in Doncaster. He was the apple of his mother Pam's eye and her heart broke the day he left home for uni and never came back, as he got a job in Yorkshire not long after he graduated. I wonder what the problem is, Justine thought to herself. Justine's mum, Pam, was a bit of a worrier. In fact, she could worry for England. If it was an Olympic event, she'd be a gold medalist. Pam had brought Justine and Ned up as a single parent. Her husband left her not long after Ned was born. Tom wasn't ready to be a parent again. He found it hard the first time round. It was the realisation of being responsible for a wife and a child. Justine wasn't planned. She was a happy accident for Pam, but for Tom, she was something to fear. And then when Ned came along, it all got a bit too much for him. And he left, forcing Pam to struggle alone, and then making her eventually live with her mum and dad with two young kids in tow. It wasn't ideal living back with the mum and dad, but they were doting grandparents and thought the world of Justine and Ned. In fact, they overcompensated for the fact that their father had left them, but they grew up in a world of love. Justine's grandparents was proud as punch when she was called to the bar and told everyone about their granddaughter's achievements. It was a kind of pride that Justine would have loved to instil in her father, but she didn't know where he was and didn't remember much about him. And she was so glad her grandparents had lived long enough to see her and Ned do well. Justine rang Pam. Hi, Mum, it's me. I, I got your message. What's up? Are you OK? Oh, Justine, I'm so sorry. It's your dad. He's back. There was a stunned silence. It took Justine a while to comprehend what she'd just heard. She was so used to family problems and sorting out other people's, but this news was about her family and something she wasn't expecting. I'm sorry, Mum, I just don't know what to say. 
Justine had so many emotions rolling around inside her and a million questions needing answers. It turned out earlier that day Pam was in the garden pruning the roses when out of the blue Justine's dad Tom appeared at the gate. He parked his long sleek Jaguar car outside the house. It was a top of the range model. His suit was designer and he was looking much younger than his 58 years. Time had been kind to him. Hello, Pam. Pam turned round. All the colour drained out of her face, and she dropped her secateurs. Tom? She felt faint. She couldn't catch her breath. It was a total shock, and not one that she had or could have had prepared herself for. It wasn't real. It had been nearly thirty years. In all that time, she hadn't heard from him. She didn't even know if he was dead or alive. He was in a life one minute the next and gone. And now here he was, standing in front of her, as large as life. She felt her cheeks and they were red and flustered. The stray hairs from her bun, she quickly tidied up. She did look all of her 57 years. In fact, you would say she looked older. She'd already experienced a lifetime of stress as a single mum, struggling to make ends meet and being both mum and dad to her kids. Although her parents were happy to house them, the kids were her responsibility, and Tom had no part to play, sent no money, nothing. And now here he was, looking like he'd stepped out of a Milan fashion shoot. I thought it's about time I came home, he said. Pam couldn't believe what she was hearing. She didn't know what to do. Her knees had gone to jelly and she found it hard to string a sentence together. Was this really happening? Pam asked Tom to come into the house, her family home, which came to her when her parents died. It was comfy, and she was well set up after working hard and saving hard all of her life. She was content with a lot. Tom didn't really say much. He looked around the living room and saw the photos of his kids from all stages of their life and stared at one in particular of Justine and Ned in their school uniform from 20 years ago. Ned looks a lot like you, Tom, Pam said, while he was holding the photo. But why now? Why are you here? Tom sat on the sofa, took a deep breath, and said that he needed to tie up some loose ends. So his wife and two kids that he hadn't clapped eyes on for merely 30 years were loose ends. Pam didn't know how to react. She knew what she wanted to say but just couldn't find the words. She was angry more than anything else. I know what I did was wrong, said Tom. God knows I've tried to get in touch, but I couldn't do it. But now I think is the right time. As you can see, I've done really well for myself. I've made a fortune for my property business. I've got a beautiful house, a number of classic cars, and a villa in Spain. But I'm not well. And I wanted to come and see you. I can't cope with this, said Pam. I need to get hold of Justine. And that's where we are now. Justine had called and just been told that her dad is back. And she was on the end of the phone. What do you want me to do, Mum? How can I help? Just tell me what to do, said Pam, 
still in a state of shock. Is he there? said Justine. If so, put him on. Pam handed the phone to Tom. Hi, Jussie. The name's Justine. I don't want you to say anything, and I won't repeat it, but this is what I have to say. Get your coat, leave the house, get in your car, and drive away. We don't know you, we don't want you, and we don't need you. Tom put the phone down and did what he was instructed to do. He picked up his coat, gave Pam a peck on the cheek and left the house, got in the car and drove off. Pam stood there motionless, stunned. Later that night, Justine went round to visit her mum to explain her decision. Listen mum, we've managed all these years without him. He's not been any part of our lives and I don't see why he should just turn up after all this time and expect us to be happy to see him. I understand, said Pam. I just didn't know how to say that to him. You've always been the strong, sensible one in the family. And you're right, we don't need him. Justine's day job was to resolve family disputes and this was her way of dealing with this family's problem. She had a word with Ned later that evening and he was in total agreement. As Ned said, what you've never had you never miss. And he hasn't been a dad in his life and he didn't want one now. After a quick bite to eat, Justine prepared to leave. On the way out, she noticed that a candle that her mum had always got burning in the window in an ornamental glass jar, for as long as she could remember, was not burning anymore. Um, mum, your candle's gone out. I've never seen it out in all my life, and frankly, I've never understood why you had it burning in the first place. Ah, well, when you were a baby, said Pam, I watched a documentary about the American ambassador in Ireland. In the ambassador's residence, there's a candle burning in the window as a symbol to light the way back for all those Irish citizens who left during the famine and went to live in America. When your dad left, I lit a candle for him in the hope that one day he'd come back to us. All those years of wanting to come home, and when he did, I realised I didn't need him. But I didn't have the courage to say that to him. Thank goodness you did. I feel like the pressure's off and I don't have to leave the candle burning anymore. A few months later, a parcel arrived for Pam. She opened it. It was a bundle of documents from a solicitor and the last will and testament of her husband Tom, who died not long after he'd been to see her. He'd left his entire estate and fortune to her. All three million of it. All those years of struggling to bring up the kids, keep food in their bellies and be both mum and dad to them. And now, she was a millionaire. But she didn't want his money. It wouldn't be right. All this time he had all that money and could have got in touch any time and made their lives a whole lot easier. She looked at the cheque and held it in her hand and knew straight away what she should do. She arranged for the money to go to a local children's charity that made dreams come true for poorly children. Tom might have not have cared about her or the kids over the past three decades, but using his money to help others was definitely the right thing to do.